Just the Podcast. I am your host, Ray Harkins, and I am recording this at about one in the morning in my car as I'm driving home from a reunion show that I did with my old band, Taken. More on that in a minute. But the guest this week, holy shit, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, I will begin with the name, Aaron Turner. He is the owner of Hydrahead Records who has put out records by bands like Botch, Cave-In, like anything related to heavy music that is artistic, groundbreaking, other adjectives I can't come up with right now. Uh, they Hydrahead Records had something to do with it. And on top of that, he also sang and played guitar in a band called Isis. And yeah, more on that in a minute. I got to get business out of the way first, then I can just go right into it. Um, propertyofzack.com Incredible site I mean, I just can't say enough good things about that You should be visiting them on the daily If not twice a day Maybe three times a day Four is a little excessive, so keep it at three um, They're great partners They post our show We're proud to be teamed up with them So continue to visit there if you haven't already Drop some reviews on iTunes Go there you will be able to spend two seconds and give us a two-star, three-star, four-star, five-star, whatever you feel the show's worth. Give that review. I appreciate it. I pay attention to the numbers, and I see, like, okay, where it's, like, 79, 80. I would love to see more because the more that we get that, the more that our podcast has clout, credibility, whatever you like to call it. And I want that because I want more people to listen to the show. Uh, and then secondly, you can also maybe drop an actual word review, like sentences and putting them together. Do that and I will pay attention to it and I will say thank you because um, there's legitimately been people I've like reached out and done research and like, oh, that's that person. I think I'm friends with them on Facebook. <laughs> Anyways. Um, and then visit the website, 100wordspodcast.com. You can f follow us on Twitter there, Instagram, whatever. There's a bunch of shit you can do there. But above all, I just try to share fun stuff that I trip on during the week that I'm like, you know what? You should pay attention to this. Usually it's like songs, movies, whatever, funny YouTube clips. But usually they all have something to do with the artistic endeavors of creative people. Anyways, um, Aaron Turner. Isis probably is one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, I saw them, I was trying to count it in my head, and I will mention this at the beginning of the interview. Where I mean, I think I saw them like around 40-ish times. It's stupid. Like, And I always told myself when I went to go see them that if they were boring, that I would stop. But anyways, I go into that in the interview. But uh, to say I was excited that Aaron wanted to do this interview is an understatement. And I tried not to get too fanboy on him and you know tried to maintain my composure and be cool about it. Um, but it was hard, um, yeah, because I just respect his work that he's put in creatively so much. And, you know, that's hard to do for such a long period of time. So anyways, that's Aaron Turner. Um, and the reason why I'm recording this as I'm driving is because I really want to conceptualize and just crystallize these thoughts that I have of the night that I just experienced and basically how it directly connects to why I do this podcast and why I think the why I think music is so goddamn important. So, like I've mentioned before, and like I plugged, band did a reunion show. It was a benefit show. The show was incredible. We raised like five thousand dollars for this family, and that just feels great. Like to be so 
you know, outside of yourself and be like, all right, here this is. We're getting together. We're spending money. We're fucking printing shirts. We're doing all these things all for one person. And it was incredible. It was an incredible feeling. And that was ultimately the most important thing of the night. There was obviously byproducts of that. Um, and it, it's just, it blows my mind because this band taken was not like, we're not big. Like, and when I say big, like we hardly made an impact. People knew who we were sort of in Southern California, sort of in Canada, other random places, but it's, it's the intensity in which people latch on to a certain band when they discover it, you know, whatever walk of their life and recognize it as genuine and something that is meaningful to them, whatever they're taking out of it. And it's like, that's what I've always noticed about the people that have followed what Taken has done, where it's like, okay, they recognize that it's just fucking dudes. Like we are not, you know, there's no illusions of grandeur or the fact that we wanted to do this band for a living or whatever. Like not like anything, any of those things are bad necessarily, but it just, we never were like that. And I would like to believe that we came from a very genuine place in any event. The fact that people came, people cared, the show was very well attended, and just the amount of people that walk through your life when you do a show like this, it was just incredible. Um, and to see people that you know I met a year ago and see people that I've met 10 years ago, a word for it is overwhelming. It's really hard to not feel so fucking sappy and just nostalgic and like all these things that, you know, you, people try to make sure that they don't, uh, overblow things, but I'm just so grateful. And like I said, this is like, I'm verging on cliches, but I'm just so thankful that I was able to trip across this music scene. And that it's given me literally everything that I have in my life from my wife to my job. Like everything is all directly because I decided to pick up you know, a record and decided to dive into that world. And it's just, it blows my mind that it's been able to give me, yeah, given me so much over such a long period of time. Um, and so, yeah, whatever, this is basically a love letter to independent music. Um, but I hope that you can sort of derive some meaning out of that, whether or not it's like, Oh, this band, I totally get it. Like, this band has got me through most of the most difficult times of my life and is so meaningful to me. And if they ever did a reunion or they played around me or whatever, I would just, you know, lose my shit. Um, and I just, I like the fact that people can be so passionate about it. Um, yeah. So it's just awesome. And that's like why I love doing these interviews because I try to get to the core of why people are doing what they do. And honestly, if you've listened to almost every episode, you'll notice a, a theme and a trend where it's like, you know, people really do, even though they might be playing different music and be in so many different parts of their lives, that they all kind of have similar stories and they've all had similar experiences with music in general. Um, so yeah, it's just such a powerful medium. And like, I couldn't even imagine my life not having that in it. So anyways, here's the interview I did with Aaron Turner. And the passion is just bleeding all over this. I can't even stop. It's fucking one in the morning, and I'm just, I'm going crazy. So anyways, here it is. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you after. Hey, 
yeah. That's, yeah, I totally feel you on that because it was, uh, it definitely affected my house as well. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, this, uh, obviously I don't want this to be a very typical interview in the sense of, you know, question, answer. Uh, it's just very casual conversation. I'll just kind of walk you through your life and, uh, essentially, you know, what I like to derive from these is just kind of, you know, kind of why people do what they do and, you know, how, Okay. so, um, yeah. And I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll probably take somewhere, you know, whatever, 40 ish minutes or so. So, uh, but if, if I do hit on anything that you're like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. That's totally fine. We can skip it. It's not a big deal. Well, I'm, I'm usually good at being, uh, pretty straightforward about that. You are. That's a problem. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> no, I figured I, I actually interviewed you. This was like, eons and eons ago but uh there's a terrible magazine from southern california called scratch and uh oh yeah i remember that one yeah yeah it was an awful magazine but i just did freelance writing for anybody that i could and uh yeah yeah so but um yeah so usually i like to start things off with just like my own personal sort of you know experience uh interaction just with you know the musical entity that you're most known for, which obviously is ISIS. Um, yeah. I don't even know if I would say that anybody that labels themselves obviously like, Oh dude, I'm a super fan of this band. Like I feel it's pretty nerdy, you know, like, and not in a good way. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> Cause it's like, I, I, I literally cannot count how many times I saw you guys play like from, and I think the first time I saw you was when you guys toured out West with Caven. And, um, yeah, yeah, that was 99. So yeah, that was quite a while ago. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it was one of those things that like, I think what spoke to me about your band was just the fact that like, I honestly always told myself, all right, dude, if they, if they aren't that good live or, you know, like you just don't feel excited to watch a band anymore, you know, like if you're just doing it out of repetition or nostalgia. Like, yeah. And so I constantly, I really did always gut check myself where I was like, all right, dude, do I really need to see ISIS for like, no joke, like before, <laughs> the, the 42nd time. Uh, but then you, you, I don't know, you guys just didn't bore me, which is, I guess what any band could ask for. <laughs> Yeah, well, we tried. We did our best to not over tour. I think that was something we saw happen with friends of ours or our, our people in our peer group, where either they or their audiences or both just got burned out from doing the same circuits over and over. And we did, you know, we obviously ended up playing some places over and over again, mm-hmm. but that was simply because we were just around long enough to make that happen. Right. Um, even at our, our highest peak of activity, we tried not to tour the U S more than once a year. Right. And in some cases it was spread out, spread out even further, uh, a bit further apart. So what I, what I always found about you guys too, is like, even if I did see you, uh, you know, touring, you know, free, like quote unquote, more frequently, like, you know, if you were through the same spot within, you know, whatever, a six month period, you were doing a tour that like, you couldn't say no to like, you know, yeah. if, if Mogwai is going to be like, Hey, y- y- you guys were friends. How about you come out with us? It's not like you're going to be like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was another exception too. I mean, for instance, if we, like you pointed out, had an opportunity to play somewhere opening for someone else, that would be a different set of circumstances. Cause I, I feel like in a lot of ways, 
playing to an audience like Mogwai or somebody, you know, like Tool or whatever other bands that we opened for whose audience would have been previously unaware of us. That would have been a wholly different set of people, which, you know, um, for us, especially when we were still trying to expand uh, the band in that way, it was really important. Yeah, no, no, for sure. That's that's yeah. So, anyways, I, I'm I'm not trying to blow too too much smoke up your ass, but just uh, I, I I watched you play probably way too many times than I probably should care to admit. But so good job. Way way did not be boring after a while. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, some of my favorite bands have become my favorite bands because they've been consistently good right. live, no matter how many times I've seen them, and they're not many that fall into that category but i appreciate a lot the ones that do yes well that that's that's good i'm glad <laughs> and so kind of kind of going all the way back to the start you know where were you uh you born and raised i mean i i know you spent time in albuquerque is that is that correct uh close santa fe oh. i wasn't born there i was born in springfield massachusetts mm-hmm. um but my family moved to new mexico I think when I was one and a half and even prior to that, they were spending the summers there. So I feel that's where I originate from. And that was where I grew up and, uh, I didn't end up leaving there until I was 17 when I went to Boston to go to college. Right. So, so yeah, definitely all of, all of my formative experiences were there. Exactly. Right. The, the, the formative years. And I, it was funny cause I, I was actually talking about, New Mexico today to my wife because we were uh I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that show Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. And, and so like I've never had any uh I guess like just normal experiences <laughs> in New Mexico in general. Just like Albuquerque's such a strange city and like New Mexico is just this kind of it's just a weird state and I don't know if that was like something that you observed as you were kind of growing up um, or was it just kind of, you know, I, you were I didn't be, I was normalized for me because I, I grew up there and I didn't really start to understand how unique it was until I left and started bringing other people back or mm-hmm. occasionally, you know, people would come and visit me or my family before I moved away and would comment on how different it seemed um, and I still can't see it from a completely outside perspective. Right. Um, like I said, it was normalized for me having grown up there, but it is a very unique place. And uh, I, I, in most ways, I feel fortunate for having grown up there, uh, partially because of that, but for a variety of other reasons too. Yeah. So what did your, um, what did your parents do for uh, a living? And do you, do you have any brothers and sisters? Uh, I'm the youngest of five. Um, oh wow! <laughs> I, I only grew up with one of my siblings. The others um, were their half siblings, and they lived with their mother. Um, but they came and stayed with us a lot, so they were in and out all the time when I was growing up. Uh, my dad is a writer, and my mother, uh, for much of the time I was growing up, was involved in education. Mm, I see. What, just like a uh, like uh, the educational system, or was she actually a teacher herself? She was a teacher for a while, and then she was part of a nonprofit group that developed curriculum um, of different kinds, but largely centering around uh, environmental issues um, mm. for everywhere, age range from, you know, elementary school all the way through high school. So that was a a big part of her 
pursuit when I was growing up. Sure, sure. And what your your dad was a writer. What was his uh, what was his focus? Uh, he wrote a lot of nonfiction and did some journalism. Uh, pretty much up until the time I left for uh, college, and then in subsequent years has been focusing a lot more just on fiction with occasional um, freelance articles. Oh, interesting. Like, was it that 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 seems like a a, a job that would be um, I, I wouldn't say difficult to explain, but you know, you you might have looked at your father and been kind of like, oh, like that's that's not like what everybody's dad does. Like, you know, they're not a you know banker or whatever the the typical dad job was that you know when you were going through elementary school and high school and stuff like that. To some extent, but um, Santa Fe had a lot of. Uh, writers and painters and photographers. I mean, in, in a certain way, there was a big arts community there. That's uh, true. It wasn't necessarily uh, very progressive, and it was a lot of it was very regionally specific in a certain way. But um, it was still, I think, more present there than a lot of other towns of that size. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of associations with it around that yeah no that that is true i forgot yeah in the context of, of santa fe you definitely hear a lot of people that you know they they go there to uh work on their craft because there you know might be less distractions in a way <laughs> yeah yeah and so you uh you know as you kind of grew up in <clears throat> in new mexico did you uh you know what, what did you find yourself doing you know were you uh were you into sports and you know or were you uh more of a indoor kid as i like to refer to him that to that time? um i wasn't i wasn't an indoor kid uh but i wasn't into sports either but um you know there was a lot to see and do in the natural landscape around where i grew up and like a lot of kids i just learned how to make my own fun running around outside mm-hmm. uh, but i was pretty good at entertaining myself indoors as well i was definitely really into drawing and listening to music and later making music uh to a slightly lesser extent reading mm-hmm. um as i was growing up so those were my main pursuits, uh, sure. some of which were extremely introverted, but some of which later became group activities too. So I would definitely say that I was naturally drawn to creative pursuits from an early age. Did you? Uh, my parents definitely oh. encouraged me that way too, and I, bef- I ended up befriending a lot of people with similar interests. Yeah, that that's exactly what I was going to ask. Because sometimes, I mean, usually, you know, when you're younger, obviously, your parent, you know, parents tend to want to foster their children's curiosity. But then, obviously, sometimes there comes to a point where it's like, oh, like you know, it's either not economically viable to help them, you know, <laughs> along this path, or it's like you know, they're just you kind of have to choose to do something else in a way. But it's great that they were obviously, you know, understanding of what you started to get into. Yeah, I think there were times, especially my dad didn't really understand it. And I won't say that he disapproved uh, exactly, but I think it took him especially a long time to kind of realize that I was really serious about it and that uh, heavy metal wasn't just a passing interest or like a a teenage phase. Right. Um, But overall, I would say that growing up in a household with parents who liked it, and loved a lot of music and 
uh, were appreciative of the arts in general was probably um, really good for me. Yeah, yeah. Did it, so? Like, was music important to them in the sense of like you know you you were they were exposing you to certain styles of music that they were into and stuff like that? To some extent, I mean, it was sort of just partially by proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't really try to get me into one thing or in particular. It was just that they listened to a lot of music, so I heard it a lot. Right. And for a long time, I was really uh, averse to the stuff they liked, um, partially just because I was a kid and I didn't want to like what my parents liked. Right. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the fact that... Um, you know, they liked classical music and jazz and stuff that was uh, a little more progressive in nature or mm-hmm. um, not necessarily commercially oriented music, I think was an important thing for me in the formative way, too. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, especially because usually most, um, you know, people's experience, especially especially within this sort of independent, you know, music culture is like, you know, oh, yeah, my parents were into the radio and that's kind of like, you know, where it existed. Like very very rare occasions where you actually get a person who is just like, Oh yeah, my, my dad bought me, uh, you know, my first kiss record. It's just like, well, that doesn't happen so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, my being the youngest of five, my dad was, um, quite a bit older than the mm-hmm. parents of a lot of my peers. So he was definitely too old to have hit like the, you know, um, what I guess when I was growing up would have been considered classic rock. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he was a teenager long before any of that stuff happened. So interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I escaped that particular phenomenon and that might be part of the reason why I still don't really care much for a lot of pop music. <laughs> yeah, sure. Cause you're like, well, you know, my, my dad was listening to more highbrow music. It's like, yeah, I don't, uh, this top 40 stuff doesn't really appeal to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, as you started to go through um, high school, I guess kind of a two-part question where the, um, you know, what what sort of role did you find yourself, uh, you know, filling at high school as far as, uh, you know, part of communities you were gravitating towards? Um, and then I guess the second part was like, you know, did you uh, invest time in studies and did you kind of, you know, dive into high school or, or was it more? No, so- I was a, I was a terrible student. Yeah. I, I really was. I mean, as far as academic stuff goes, my my art teachers loved me and um, I was lucky in that way because I had one especially good one in my junior and senior year. Uh, and I did work hard at that, but mm-hmm. I yeah, I was not diligent with the rest of my homework. And my <laughs> grades definitely reflected that. <laughs> sure. Um, and um, I think my last two years of high school were the most formative in terms of what I ended up doing. I mm-hmm. uh, befriended some other kids, the, the few kids that were in my high school who listened to punk and hardcore and that was the, that was a huge turning point for me. Prior to that, I was definitely more into smoking pot and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, listening to Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and just doing some sort of more <laughs> average teenage things in a way. And <laughs> sure, sure. I encountered these kids and got into being straight edge and veganism and some more, I guess, political ideals and... Uh, listening to underground music and that, that changed my life forever. So uh, we were um, 
definitely outsiders. And in, in a way there wasn't that many of us in our little group. And, um, like a lot of kids, I think we were all searching for our own sense of identity and that made us feel important and bonded together and helped us define who we were in the context of our, our larger peer group. Right. Um, (laughs) No, I think you, you said something that totally triggered a memory for me where it was like the, the idea of the work that you were doing as far as like the music you were getting into. And like you said, the, you know, the political activism and whatever, once you, once your world started to become bigger, you know, you felt like you were on a secret, like no one else around you knew about it. And you were just like, I'm into some awesome shit here. Like how come, how come you understand this? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think that was part of it. I mean, I think part of it was really resonating with me on a deep level. And part of it was just teen angst. Like I wanted to be different or I wanted to piss people off or mm-hmm. I wanted to piss my parents off. Right, <laughs> right, right. Certainly <laughs> factors, but some of it really stuck with me and I had carried it forward to, the, to this day. So there must've been something deeper there beyond just wanting to be different or to stir shit up. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I find it interesting too, because, um, cause I imagine you were going to high school, like in, in the early nineties, I would say, or early to mid nineties. Uh, yeah, I, I graduated in 95. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the idea, especially, you know, here we are in 2013 and the idea of like regional music scenes, it still exists, but it's obviously, you know, uh, Akron, Ohio can have just as vibrant of a music community as somewhere else because obviously the globalization of the internet, but yeah, the, the the point I'm making where it's like Santa Fe, like I, I'd have a hard time thinking of one band that originated from there. So it's like the fact that you guys were, you know, a, a niche of a niche and getting into stuff that yeah. wasn't coming through your town. Ta- like, you know, so were there a decent amount of shows that you guys were able to go to or just here and there? Um, there are some local bands. Most of them were at that time just kind of like the alternative rock type of bands like, you mm-hmm. know, um, influenced by uh, the grunge and pre-grunge explosion, but there was a very small group of uh, punk bands too, mostly on the the crustier end of the spectrum. <laughs> Got it. Um, and there were there was one in particular, this band Logical Nonsense, who did a couple records on oh yeah alternate on alternative tentacles, and I think even to this day they're one of the few bands from New Mexico that kind of made it out into the wider world. I remember it was a huge deal when they uh, got an opening spot for Neurosis on the Enemy of the Sun tour. And it was like, uh, it was kind of a feat for a local band to get something of that uh, high profile. And of course, them getting signed to Alternative Tentacles is a big deal too. Yeah, no, I I, I totally remember that band. And that was, I had no, I I had no sense of where they were from, but that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, but there wasn't much of a local scene to speak of. I mean, the times when Logical Nonsense did play, it was, you know, at youth centers or some of these basements. But um, around the time I uh, got out of high school, there was there started to be a little bit more happening. Mm-hmm. There's definitely more going on in Albuquerque, national bands right. who did decide to stop in New Mexico often only played in Albuquerque, so we had to go go down there and make the drive uh if we wanted to see that stuff right um but it was definitely you kind of had to you had to work for it and um the the shows were definitely small so yeah it wasn't easy to 
to get into that stuff being where we were. Right. But, uh, it, t- it took, I'm very, I'm very grateful that I did. Right. Right. Yeah. It took, it took a lot of heavy lifting. It was like, this isn't something that just drops in your lap. There's like, no, we gotta, we gotta invest in this. Um, yeah. And there was definitely no straight edge hardcore bands in New Mexico. No. None. Like we were the only kids I think in the whole state who were into that stuff. <laughs> with the, with the exception of maybe a, a handful in Albuquerque. Right. No, no. I, you definitely don't see uh, Santa Fe straight edge, uh, varsity jackets at all. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> That's incredible. The medium in which you were working in regards to art, like, is obviously like you were saying, you know, your junior, senior year, um, Everybody always has that one teacher in high school that is like of the subject that they enjoy that totally ushers them through and is like, oh, this is what I want to try to do. And like, it sounds like you had that experience too. Yeah. In some ways, that teacher, he didn't necessarily save my high school career, but I did consider dropping out and just taking the GED test and Mm -hmm. going that route. And I don't know that it would have had a really detrimental impact on my future, but nonetheless it was really good for me to encounter this particular teacher and he encouraged me a lot and definitely got me to break out of my own way of doing things and showed me that there were a lot of other possibilities in terms of how I could pursue art and think about it right um, so I think that was very um that was a very important turning point for me that occurred at the same time as my discovery of punk and hardcore sure and it was also because of being in his class that I ended up meeting one of the representatives from the art school I ended up going to in Boston, which was another obviously big change for me that affected everything that happened thereafter. Yeah, no, totally. And before we move on to that, the what medium were you primarily concentrating on? Just uh, mostly like drawing, like you were saying? Drawing and painting, yeah. Got it, got it. So yeah, like you said, I mean, you you know, you moved uh, moved to Boston to go to art school and everything. And so uh, at this time, I'm sure the relationship between you and your parents was was pretty strained. And I'm sure in some ways they were probably relieved that you had some sense of direction where it's like where you wanted to go. Uh, was that the case, or was it they were just kind of like you're like I got to get out of here, and they were like go. <laughs> Again, I think my mom was always pretty supportive of whatever I wanted to do, and I don't know how much she ever worried about me in terms of my future. Mm -hmm. And I think my dad definitely wondered a lot more about what I was going to do. I don't know if... I've never really talked to him about it all that much, but I think I I got the sense that he kind of assumed I was going to art school just because I didn't want to do regular school work, which was part of my motivation, but (laughs) that was also because I really did want to try to pursue art and come more serious fashion and it wasn't until my third or fourth year of school that he saw I was really seriously invested in having, you know, creativity, whether in art or music, right. both um, at the center of my life. And I think he started to feel a little more relieved or assured that I wasn't just going to be um, directionless. And yeah. my veganism and being straight edge was off-putting for them and him in particular in a certain way. But I also think, uh, especially for my mom, it was actually kind of reassuring. Like I knew I wasn't going to go off to college just to party. So right. that was probably helpful. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. 
<laughs> that's but I mean it's interesting though because like everything that you're talking about your father like you said you know he's obviously older and I mean when it comes to that parents wrapping their heads around what their kids are doing when it's out of context it's like they don't they don't understand like you know like whatever yeah. you know whatever 20 30 years down the line you know you have a child like you know they start to get into you know something where you're just like I have I have no idea what this is like but you may have a better yeah. you you may have a better sense of it now because you have experienced like you know some you, you've experienced a lot of subgenres and niches of interest but yeah it's like so you you know i'm sure you can totally understand where it's like oh yeah i can see where my dad was like aaron is fucking up man he is making some bad decisions here <laughs> i'm like a lot of parents too i think my dad he viewed his life in some way as a series of bad mistakes and he didn't want me to make the same mistake. Sure. He's like, Aaron, use, use my life as a roadmap. Do not go down this path. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And so then, uh, I mean, I'm sure the move from New Mexico to Boston was just, uh, was, was there a large adjustment, shall we say? Um, in a certain way, yeah. I mean, I was totally ready for it at that point. So there was nothing about moving to a big city that was off-putting to me. I was just excited about it mm-hmm. uh, all across the board. So I didn't feel like overwhelmed. I just dropped into Boston and went for it, basically. Right. Uh, because of the the musical community that I was a part of, it was pretty easy for me to make connections, making friends, and start finding people to play music with. So right. That's another way in which being a part of the underground music scene was really helpful for me. Uh, I was making connections based off of a shared interest in being creative um, rather than just, again, just wanting to party and fuck off, basically. So even though I probably spent a lot more time going to shows and assembling records in my bedroom than I did uh, working on some of my schoolwork. <laughs> um, I think it was still a very good place for me to be and ultimately shaped my life in a very positive way. Right. In, in looking at obviously what you've done through throughout your life as well, um, it, it always struck me like, I definitely think that it's something within the DNA of people who, um, you know, once they started in, getting into independent music, you, you can't simply just do one thing. Like, you're not just like, all right, I'm going to, um, you know, play in a band or whatever. It's either like, all right, I'm going to play in a band. I'm going to put on some shows. I want to put out some friends records. I want to do like, you know, there's, there's always like 5 million things that you want to do. Obviously part of it is youth because you're excited, but it, it's always struck me that <clears throat> it comes from the fact that you obviously want to create art as opposed to like, all right, here's obviously the end game of, I, I will make money off of this. Like obviously, obviously that yeah. needs to, obviously that needs to come into play in some way, but it, it's never it, it's it seems like it's never been you know the obviously at the forefront. You, you, you've never been the the most uh, I guess business savvy guy from that perspective. Where it's like no, right. <laughs> not at all. Right? Okay. That that was a a shortcoming that has come back to haunt me. Yeah. Um, in some pretty big ways, obviously, uh, what's happened to Hydrahead is, has a lot to do with that. Of course. But <clears throat> yes, the motivation for me then and now was just to work with people that I enjoyed working with to make 
creative pursuits the center of my life and to participate in a creative life that involved making connections with other people and involved, you know, being part of a a public forum, basically. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be connected to the world through what I was doing. I wanted to be able to have some kind of voice in the world through my art and music and also um, help other people get their music out into the world. So those were always the motivations for me. And that was like the drive for me to do it. I do wish um, that I had spent a little more time thinking about how things could function over the long term, <laughs> right? Based off of some sound business principles, but in the same way, well, let's just put it this way: I'm glad that everything has happened the way that it has. I don't think that the label or even some of the musical projects I've been involved with would have turned out um, the way they have if I was thinking about um, business more than the creative side of things, um, right? It's probably would have been helpful for me to encounter more people along the way who did have some business sense. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but, I, uh, but I found myself surrounded by a lot of people who just didn't care about much of anything or kind of like me and cared more about, you know, making music rather than figuring out how to make a business function. Right, right. How, like, how, how are we going to pay for this? Was Isis your first musical endeavor from that perspective? Or like had you tried to put stuff together like in high school and like I had some pseudo bands before I left New Mexico, but nobody that was ever really serious. I mean we played at most we played a high school talent show. Oh um, those or, are always those or, are always great experiences. Yeah. I we I had one sort of looking back on it, it was a pretty progressive project in a weird way. We played vacuum cleaners and uh, ladders and tape decks uh, and guitar. It was like a weird um, music concrete slash industrial slash metal type thing. And we we only played one show and it was uh, opening for Cole Ass and Bloodlet and Santa Fe. Uh, it was actually a lot of fun and I wish that we had pursued that a little bit more. Did this, anyway, I'm glad that it, it happened at all. Right. Did this? Uh, did that project have a particular name? Because it sounds like with that band would have a great name. Uh, if it did, I don't remember what it was. Um, <laughs> That's great. Uh, but no, there wasn't anything really serious uh, before I left for Boston. And then the last two, I actually can't remember when I started the band prior to ISIS, but the band was called Union Suit. And uh, yeah. we did a demo cassette, which was uh, an unofficial Hydra head release. And then we did a seven inch on Second Nature. And I think that was maybe 96 or 97. And we played quite a few local shows and out of state shows and that was that. So Yeah, that kinda that kinda that, that got your feet wet, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. And I knew I mean I knew even before doing that that I really, really wanted to be in a band and do as much as possible in that way. But it wasn't really until ISIS started that I was able to do more of what I really felt like I wanted to do. Sure, yeah, you're able to creatively express yourself more appropriately yeah. rather than bring back yeah. cleaners on stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that was great, though, I have to say. <laughs> it's, I, I mean, 
I think witnessing something like that would probably be like, you know, the first time you see a band like, you know, Lightning Bolt or something like that, where it's just like, what's happening? Yeah. Like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what, uh, this is more of a, a general statement, but the, um, you know, even though you obviously fronted ISIS and, you know, a lot of uh, attention fell directly on you because, you know, that's kind of what happens when people sing for bands. Um, you know, you never struck me as the person who was obviously like comfortable with that in the sense of like, oh God, like I can't wait for all the adulation to come upon me or all these people to ask me what my lyrics mean. Like it always seemed like you were obviously reluctant from that perspective. Was it just kind of, you just accepted it because you knew the way it was going to be? Or was it like, I wish they would talk to somebody else in the band. <laughs> I was okay with it. Yeah. I mean, at, when ISIS started, I definitely was not comfortable being a singer, and I wanted someone else to do it. <laughs> and I talked about it with uh, Jeff, our bass player, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But it just ended up being that there wasn't another person who was right for what we wanted. So I was the de facto singer. But it took me a long time to become comfortable with that. Uh, and to some extent, I never truly became totally comfortable with it. Right. Uh, but as, as far as being sort of the spokesperson or the figurehead to the band, I was okay with it. I enjoyed, under certain circumstances, talking about the ideas behind the band. And we never wanted to go the route of, you know, really promoting ourselves in terms of being a... How can I explain it? Like, <laughs> we we want humble pictures where our faces weren't visible, and we didn't want to really become like kind of a PR hype machine type of band. Right. Uh, so, in a certain way, that in and of itself is image cultivation, but different sort of way. Right. Right. Um, we wanted it. We wanted the focus to be on the music and not so much the person who's involved. So that was kind of an, a very conscious decision, but it wasn't so much about being uncomfortable at that. It was just wanting the focus to be on something other than the the personalities of the people involved or something about the the extracurricular ideas of the people behind the band. Right, right. It's like yeah, you wanted you wanted to present it uh, as a as a cohesive unit and like not, you know, each individual band member is building their own quote unquote brand. Like <laughs> this is just a vehicle yeah. for them to do so. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff and I, who were kind of the people who started the band, were into bands that were not mysterious necessarily, but who had a very interesting or challenging persona in the sense that you never knew too much about the people involved and kind of helped preserve the creative mystery around the band itself. And I think that that was really, really important for us, too. I was always frustrated or bummed out when I read interviews with bands that I really liked, and it was all, you know, fart jokes or talking about getting fucked up or whatever. <laughs> stuff to me kind of took away from the band rather than adding something to it. You want people, especially if you're creating music that obviously should be contemplative in nature, um, you know, you don't want this completely juxtaposed image of like, you know, sort of blink 182 humor in interviews. Like, yeah. Cause otherwise you're just like, is this person even serious with like what they're trying to like, what they're doing? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of on top of that too. Cause like the, you know, like you were saying, because there was obviously, you know, there was a, an intentional air of mystery about the band. 
um, you know, people are going to perceive you one way as like either, you know, elitist, hipster, whatever the hell adjective you want to put on it, you know, was, I'm sure there was an element of concern from that perspective where it's just like, oh, wow, like, you know, Aaron is like this super, super serious dude. And like, he just doesn't, (laughs) you know, like he has no sense of humor. Like, you know, I'm sure people came up to you that were like, you know, intimidated from that perspective where it's like, oh, I can't talk to Aaron. Like he's this enigma. Well, there's definitely some accusations uh, leveled at us about being pretentious and stuff like that. But as hard as it is in some way to completely remove yourself from that, unless stuff got really, really personal, we were never really bothered by it. I mean, there's a a couple of times where people were posting things on forums that were just so aggressive and they were obviously from people who knew us in some way or another, Mm -hmm. um, or had encountered us and thought they, you know, got enough from that encounter to assume that they knew us and that, you know, that was bothersome, but I learned to, I learned to ignore it after a while. I just realized that it wasn't that important. And as soon as you enter into a public sphere and you start putting your work out into the world, there's always going to be people who want to support you. And there's going to want, there's going to be people who want to detract from what you're doing. And you just kind of have to let that stuff go. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, for every every 10 positive things you hear about what it is that, you know, you are creating, the one comment that you hear that could be perceived as negative or, you know, questioning something you do, that's the one you're going to remember. <laughs> like, that's just, yeah. that's just human nature. <laughs> I also learned early on from reactions I saw towards other people's music that if you were doing something that really, you know, had some substance to it, it provoked strong reactions and even strong negative reactions in that way are a good sign. It means you're hitting something in people on more than a surface level. Uh, That's a good thing. No, I I think it's such a great point because there are so many things. Um, The last thing that I think most people that create art want to be is kind of vanilla, you know, like just like not bad, but just kind of forgettable. Like they're never going to inspire any sort of really dialogue beyond just like, Oh, that was good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That was definitely something we wanted to avoid and consciously avoid. Right. uh, And I kind of feel that way about the label too. Love or hate is better than indifference. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and that's that. I think that's what was always the charm of what you know Hyderhead did as an entity. It's like you took yourselves as a label seriously, but at the same time, like there was such a large sense of humor behind it that was like, oh, it's you know, like it's just a record label. Like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. Now that you've you know been absent from the ISIS ecosystem for a while, um, you know, I, I, I'm always interested to hear. Uh, you know, if there is, you know, a moment or two that's sort of markedly in the band's career where it was like, wow, like this stuff started to feel real. And like, maybe it's one of those things, like you said, where your parents started to be more understanding of like, oh, maybe what Aaron is doing, like there's, there's some legitimacy behind it, you know? Like, was there any moments like that? Um, I can't think of any particular standout moments. There was a lot of small uh, revelations along the way. Um, but I don't view any one of them as being sort of the defining milestone. For right. Us. Uh, for me, just putting out our first album and being able to 
start touring beyond, you know, our very small regional area was a big step. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think everyone else felt that way too. Uh, we had big plans in the beginning, but we didn't really know if we would ever be able to, uh, follow through on those things. So when we were able to start touring and eventually when we got overseas and to Europe for the first time, and then even a little later on got to go to Japan, all of those things were a really big deal to us. The fact that people very far away from where we had originated cared enough about our music to come and see us in their hometown was uh, kind of a huge accomplishment. All of us have been in bands of one variety or another before being in ISIS, but none of them ever got half as far as ISIS did. So every time we'd put out another record or went to a country that we hadn't been to before, or, you know, got to open for one of our uh, favorite bands was a really big deal for us. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the mentality that you are describing is completely symptomatic of, you know, kind of the time that, that ISIS existed where like, you know, because you came from such, you know, modest goals where like you said, you're like, you know, I just want to put out a demo and then sort of the next step where it's like, okay, I want to put out this, um, as opposed, you know, as opposed to, it's like, you know, some, some bands, uh, you know, younger bands, they may have this like huge aspiration where it's like, all right, I would like to play Shea stadium. And it's like, how do you get there? How do you even wrap your head around that? Like, you know, why don't you have like these more reasonable steps in your life? Like it just seems, yeah, it seems kind of, you know, like self-defeating in nature. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think for us, again, it was partially because we were so focused on the creative end of things. The main thing for Jeff and I, when we started thinking about starting a band together was that we just hadn't really felt satisfied with the music that we had played in the other bands we were in and just wanted to play something that was closer to what we were hearing in our heads. Mm. Um, And so I felt okay about the first few records, but it wasn't until we made Celestial that I felt like we had partially achieved what we set out to do in the sense that I was really excited about the whole record and I loved the way it sounded and um, I didn't wince when I was hearing anything being played back. Uh, right. So that was really exciting to me. And I, I, a lot of the moments I remember in that way, I was just sitting in the studio when tracks were being mixed or being recorded and just being like, yes, this is this, like the song that I heard in my head and now it exists and it makes feel good to hear it. Like, yeah, these, these, it, it definitely is the small moments where you can take back and be like, yeah, like that, that's when I feel like, something turned something turned inside of me. yeah yeah um and so did you uh you know like kind of like going back to your parents and obviously the context in which you know you were trying to make sure that you know especially your father where it's just like hey dad like this isn't completely ruined like you know what did did they ever obviously try to come see you guys or did you ever like you know kind of show them a little bit of your your world that was built yeah sometimes my mom went to quite a few of our shows and uh, I think she didn't know entirely what to make of it. I mean, I think the <laughs> aggressive side of that music was and still is foreign to her. Right. And my dad saw a couple of our shows, and again, I, I don't think that he ever necessarily liked it, but he saw that we were really into doing it, and mm. the fact that it made me happy, I think, was reassuring to both my parents. And right. 
I also think uh, for them seeing that other people were gravitating towards it and that it grew and grew over the years probably gave them some sense that we had momentum and we had accomplished something in the more conventional sense of that term. Because, yeah, it'll be it'll be impossible to put in context, you know, years and years of this musical stylings to them. But, you know, if if you just show it's like, oh, yeah, like. Other people, other people are passionate about it, and obviously, like I've got band members that are passionate about it. It's not like you yeah. just doing this thing on your own. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Two things to sort of you know wrap everything up. You know, you obviously after ISIS ended, and like I mean, you've you've always been prolific in all the musical stuff that you've been you know doing from you know Old Man Gloom, House of Low Culture. I could obviously list millions of projects you've been involved in. You lived in Los Angeles, and then now you moved up to the Pacific Northwest. A decidedly different change from uh, you know one culture to the Pacific Northwest culture I presume that was very uh, deliberate in nature where it was like oh, okay like hmm. right, let's let's slow this down a little bit to some extent yes part of it just had to do with the personal circumstances of my life and mm-hmm. getting involved in a relationship with someone who lived in the Pacific Northwest had a lot to do with <laughs> moving there. Right. Um, but I also, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel like this place and this environment was going to be a very good change for me. Los Angeles was always sort of a, a compromise in the sense that everybody in ISIS knew we wanted to get out of Boston before we actually left there, but nobody could agree on one place that everybody liked um, so, so were you were you legitimately having like band meetings to be like, all right, guys, what about Denver? Like, what about Chicago? Like, was it was well, it really like that? It wasn't that. It wasn't that broad. We all knew we we could agree that we wanted to be on the West Coast, uh-huh. and I think had it been more affordable, we could have ended up very easily in the Bay Area because that was one of the things that we talked about a lot. But it just wasn't economically viable. Got it. Um, so L.A. it was right. and. I got some really good things out of living there, but in a lot of ways, I never got totally acclimated to it either. And I never felt like I loved LA. Like, yes, this is the place for me. There were things about it. I really, really liked. Mm -hmm. Um, but by the time, even before the time I moved away from there, I'd had enough and having grown up somewhere rural and being surrounded by nature came back to me again. I think for a while, I just wanted to get out of that. I wanted to be in a city and surrounded by people and connected to a scene and as I was when I moved to Boston. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after years of being involved in music, I made all the, the necessary connections in the sense that I was plugged into a music network that I could be a part of in perpetuity if I chose to, no matter where I lived. Mm-hmm. So that combined with the drive to get out of the densely populated area and how beautiful the Pacific Northwest is was plenty of incentive for me to come up here. Right, right. You're like, well, let's see, relationship, not, you know, clean air. Like, wow, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a lot there. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And sort of, uh, you know, like you alluded to earlier with obviously how things stand with like Hydrahead and obviously all the, um, you know, tumultuous times that every record label has gone through. And obviously Hydrahead is no stranger to that. 
and then now, I mean, 2013 marks you obviously uh, doing, you know, your the, the label will still exist and we'll put out these, you know, and I wouldn't even call them passion projects. It's like, you know, these, these cool reissues and things that obviously put in context what Hydrahead has done in the past, but obviously can sort of present it to a new audience in a way. I don't know if you'd like to elaborate with obviously your intentions for what you want to do, where you see the label sits in your life currently. Is this something that's going to take up um, 10% of your, of your life or will it take up a lot more time than you originally I, thought? I don't know. Right now, right now it's picking up a lot of time and more time <laughs> than it has in the past number of years. I would like to get it to the point where it's a lot more manageable. Is more of a side activity in a certain way. I mean, making music is is my priority releasing other people's music is not that said i feel very strongly about what hydrahead has done uh, i also feel strongly about um working uh on other people's music through siege the label that i do as my partner faith i think those things are still very important to me and, and being connected to other people that way is really important to me and, and being able to preserve to some extent at least what Hydrahead has done over the years means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to a lot of the people that we've been involved with over the years so that's enough motivation for me to keep it going. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a more practical level going back to our earlier conversation the poor business methods that Hydra had employed for years and years did come back and bite us in the ass big time. Um, part of that also had to do with the downturn in the music industry all over, but I need to write what was wrong. Uh, I need to make sure that we, we pay all our debts and we account to the people whose records we've sold over the years. And that's another very big motivation for me to keep it going over the short term. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could just put Hydrahead down and leave these debts unpaid and feel good about it. I think that would actually tarnish a lot of the good stuff that came out of it. So right. in that way, I need to learn how to run a better business, and that's part of what's happening right now. It's definitely taking a lot of effort, and it's definitely something that keeps me up sometimes right right uh i feel like things have turned in a really good direction and even if they're not going to be putting out new music anymore i'll be happy to work on keeping a lot of really great music in print and also trying to do it in an honorable way right well no, i think and i i mean i really like how obviously honest you were there where just the idea of like all right some shit was fucked up in the past, but like now I, I've learned from that and I am attempting to, like you said, like, cause it's not obvious to a lot of people, but you know, there's a lot of labels of, you know, smaller to mid level size that, you know, do, do exactly what you just said, where fold and leave so many people kind of high and dry, either, you know, record pressing plants or, you know, whoever, you know, bands that are owed royalties and stuff like that just because this is the community that kind of is like, well, you know, that dude's blacklisted, don't work with him anymore, but you're never going to see that money. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. it, it's, it's refreshing to hear you say that where it's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, that people don't, you know, in 10 years from now, people are like, oh, Aaron, yeah, fuck that dude. Hydra had worst label. Like, because <laughs> yeah. that happens so often. 
Yeah, I definitely, yeah, I didn't want it to go down that particular pathway. Yeah. So I feel good about what we've already been able to do in, in that way. And I feel uh, hopeful about the, the probability that we'll be able to restore balance. Right, right. No, for sure. And that's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's great that that obviously is on the top of your mind as opposed to, like you said, it's like, you know, it, it could, you could easily just, you know, whatever, turn off that side of your brain and be like, all right, I can't be sympathetic towards that anymore. Like, this is not part of my life. Yeah. It's like, no, it's, well, well, that's there. I, I think a lot of times what happens in those circumstances that the people who make that kind of choice never that has been burned um, right. or they've never, they've never seen their side of it. So in that way, I've been very lucky to be able to see both sides of the fence and be more sympathetic to how labels struggle and also be more sympathetic to how bands um, are taken for granted by the labels that put out their records. No, totally. And I, I think that, I, I think it's a, a great last point on the fact that, Ultimately, I mean, either professionally or just personally, like the best thing that you can do is just it's having perspective. Like the more you involve yourself either with, you know, other people with different point of views or just different relationships, um, you know, you'll be better versed at handling whatever adversity gets kind of thrown to you because you're like, no, I've experienced that. You know, same thing as what you're saying where it's like, yeah, I know what it's like to play in Omaha, Nebraska for 10 people. Like that, that is part of my reality. That's part of what I've d- done with my life. So I can empathize with, you know, you band a because of this. And so there's that more level playing field. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Hope I didn't get too fanboyish on you. Um, but you know, he is a person I really, really respect and uh, I love his music and, uh, you know, that's what happens sometimes. So check out propertyofzack.com, 100wordspodcast.com. Special thanks to our editor, Tom Richfield. Massive thumbs up. I'll have to uh, send them a gift sometime soon or something. Get them some Starbucks gift cards or whatever. I don't know. I think that's something that people do. Anyways, until next week, be safe. Be safe.